Excuse me, today we're continuing on with our Pilgrims on a Journey, uh, featuring our staff members today. Barry McRae has been a great blessing to me. He works, uh, he's a co-director of our small groups program, working with Jamie Mendez, and uh, he, uh, Barry's just been a, a great uh, addition to our staff. Not only does that, he does a lot of teaching here, uh, and I have, I've heard him teach, and he's just as solid as a rock, and Affectionately calling the, the Princeton theologian in our midst, and it's nice to have you. Bear, I'll turn it over to you, but first let me have a prayer. Please. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we I pray that you would give us now your presence, uh, and especially your servant Barry, that you would fill him with your grace, show power made perfect in his weakness. And I pray that the words that he say that he says to us today will be acceptable in your sight and that Meditation of our hearts would also be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I need that. Um, I am glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, as difficult as this was to put together and as difficult as it may be to deliver, I really am glad to be here because I think that uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about something that is very important to me. And I think that Parishes and community of faith should talk about Jesus Christ in their lives amongst themselves because I have found it to be very encouraging. And I found it encouraging on a, on a different level to put together this talk. I want to say, too, that if my intent this morning were to appear righteous, which would be a joke in and of itself, that with Leslie, Malcolm, and Charlotte here, Kane's Kayaking in North Carolina, uh, it would be a non-starter because they've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly and they know the balance of those in my life. You know, a while ago I had to give a similar talk. Uh, it wasn't as personal, but I, I nevertheless was nervous about it, and it was in Klingman, and I got here early and went into the church to pray that God would take away my nerves, and then he would make me look good. <laughs> and I was kneeling in a pew, and I was closing my eyes really tightly, because you know God listens more intently if you really close your eyes tightly. There was a sexton in the church. His job was to polish all of the pews, and he became a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine, and he came up to me. He called me Mr. B. He said, Mr. B, you look worried. I said, I am worried. I have to give a talk. He said, well, what are you speaking on? And I told him John 14:6, and he immediately knew the verse, and he said, oh, that's Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I said, that's right. He said, Mr. B, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that verse doesn't say anything about you. <laughs> and I said, you're right. He said, that's all about Jesus, so I don't know why you're nervous. And he asked if he could pray for me. And he knelt down and put his arms around my shoulders and said the most beautiful, simple, childlike prayer that I would be diminished so that Christ alone would be heard. And that's my prayer for this talk today. I wish she were here to do it. <laughs> the prayer and the talk. You know, in preparing for this, I, I needed some guidance, so I prayed a lot, and I went to the Bible. Imagine that. And I actually found a template for how to give one of these talks. It's in Acts chapter 26, where Paul gives his testimony. And it literally is his testimony. He's on trial for his life, and he tells the story of Jesus in his life to King Agrippa in Caesarea. Paul's testimony is very organized into three parts. 
The first part, the before. What his life was like before he trusted Jesus Christ. The second, the how. How he surrendered to Jesus Christ. And the third, the since. The difference since walking with Jesus Christ. My talk today will be organized similarly to Paul's. And like Paul's, my before represents the majority of my life, which is really unlike a lot of the staff members I've heard who've had beautiful stories of lifelong relationships with Jesus Christ and Christian homes. That's not my story. My before is a life dominated by self, self-absorption, in a desperate search for wholeness, life controlled by addiction to the approval of my family, my friends, my teachers, my coaches, my ministers, and anyone I'd ever met. The life of underlying loneliness, fear of abandonment, and insecurity that I dealt with by doing those things to earn that approval. My how is a perfect storm, as I call it, that the Holy Spirit put together that caused me to consider Jesus Christ as the solution to my search and to realize what he had done for me and why he had to do it. My sense is how my life has changed since. Since Jesus led me to a relationship with him, how forgiveness has had a huge impact, and how God encourages me constantly, and I'm going to define encourage and leave you with at least one example if we have time. You know, I just stated that my before life is inordinately long, but that before life ultimately shows that Christianity is what John Stott says it is. In his basic Christianity, he says it's a rescue religion. Christianity declares quite simply that God has taken the initiative in Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins. Rescue is the main theme of the Bible. Rescue was and is and will continue to be, to a certain extent, the theme of my life. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to actively seek and to save the lost. My journey is a testament to his seeking me, despite my constant rejection of him. My journey is full of rescue attempts. Jesus, through specific people and events, has knocked on the door of my heart many times, but because of my definition of life, which I'll talk to you about, I did not allow him to lead me to open the door. I was born in New Orleans during my father's third year in medical school. My father had grown up in Mobile, what could be called idyllic circumstances. He was and is a true Renaissance man. I know that phrase is, is overused, but he really is. Those of you who know him know there's nothing he cannot and does not conquer. Told by a former golf coach that he could have become a pro golfer, but he chose instead to be a neurosurgeon, and I think a good one. My mother had been adopted at birth, which is important to her story. I don't have time to go into it here. By the couple I knew as my paternal grandparents, and she grew up on Shell Mound, a substantial cotton plantation my grandfather's family owned in the Mississippi Delta. My mother physically was very beautiful, funny, charming, was fastidious about her appearance. She looked good. I am the second son of three sons, and after moving around so my father could finish his training, we ended up in Birmingham, where he was recruited to be the successor to Dr. Garber Galbraith, the head of the neurosurgery department at UAB. Shortly after moving here, however, he moved into private practice because he thought it was better for my mother and for us. We lived in a beautiful home on Canterbury Road in Mountain Brook. My father had a position he loved with partners he respected. The three of us boys were happy in our neighborhood and at our schools and on our various teams, which were many. 
My mother was involved in our lives and in our schools. My parents had grown up in church. We never went. The three of us had been christened in the Episcopal Church at St. Paul's in Mobile, but I can count on one hand the times I went to church before I was 10. So, when I was 10, everything seemed fine. Successful, nice-looking parents, well-adjusted kids in the right neighborhood. Except it wasn't fine. My mother, through a series of well-thought-out and self-induced illnesses, had gained access to and become badly addicted to prescription drugs, namely morphine. My mother, the room mother who always looked good, was a morphine addict. First, the addiction was somewhat controlled, but as these things go, it got out of control. When all of it was brought to light by her doctors and my father, instead of seeking treatment, she told, chose to get out of the situation. She called my brothers and me into her room and announced that she was not cut out to be a mother, and that she would be taking her sports car and driving to California the next day where she would live. You know, I don't remember my exact reaction at that moment. Kind of a lot for a 10-year-old to take on. But I do remember that night, I had a clear thought dawned on me. If she didn't want to be a mother, it must be because I wasn't good enough. And so, I stayed up a lot of that night making a list of the things I had done wrong from not making my bed, to being disrespectful, to lying, to stealing change from her purse. As she prepared to leave the next day, I gave her my confession. I told her I'd be a better son. Didn't work. She got in her car and drove off. I can remember running after her car down Canterbury Road yelling to come back, that I'd be better but she disappeared. I didn't see her for many, many years, but I did spend the next many, many years trying to be better. Some of you may remember Mahalia Jackson, a great gospel singer called the Queen of Gospel. She hit her peak in the 60s, and she was famous for injecting blues and a modern sensibility into the African-American spirituals. I have a CD of hers in which she Wales and beautiful spirituals. They really resonate with you. And one of my favorites, the most famous one called Motherless Child. All of you know it. She wails, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home. Motherless children have a real hard time for so, so long. But you know, although Mahalia lost her mother at age six to a freak accident, I don't think, the, and so she knows what it is to be motherless. I don't think the reason her rendition is so powerful and resonates with all of us so much because she was motherless. I think this spiritual and all the great spirituals speak to something much bigger in all of us than the tragedies we sometimes experience. These songs resonate so deeply because these songs speak of a much bigger search for wholeness that we all have the longing for a permanent home, the longing for the permanent love of a parent. It's the same search described by St. Augustine in his Confessions. 
And he writes, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And 13 centuries later, it was refined by Pascal when he wrote, and you all know this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, but which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus. I think that whatever happened to me, whatever happened to Mahalia, whatever happens to you, as tragic as they may be, and they are, in reality these events represent inflection points in our lives. Points when that God-shaped vacuum is laid bare. In the case of something violent and sudden happens, like abandonment, God-shaped vacuum could, could be viewed as a scabbed over wound. The event rips open the wound, and it hurts. But there is a chance to have it cleansed and healed and filled. I didn't tell you the story about my mother to make excuses for my sinful behavior, because uh, I don't believe that's what happened. You know, the world teaches us to sort of fixate on those areas in our lives which we think wasted our lives for some period of time. I don't believe that. And I didn't tell you that because I thought it was particularly unique. The circumstances are. But I think in all of our lives there are many inflection points which lay bare that vacuum. And they all don't have to be negative. Getting married. Having a child. Getting more responsibility at work. And there are the negative ones. The loss of a parent, the loss of a child, betrayal in a marriage, divorce. These inflection points cause us to ask the major questions. What am I doing here? Who am I? Who is God? Where is God? The challenge is that each of these inflection points, if God does not fill the vacuum, whatever thing or combination of things we use to fill the vacuum becomes our definition of life. If it, if it is God, he becomes our definition of life. For me, it was be better and do the right thing when you can and hide it when you can't. Even though we began going to church shortly after my mother left, church and the things of God were not a part of my life. Now I'm going to go through a few chronological facts. I wanted to leave these out, but Leslie said that's how people kind of relate. Because facts tell us where a person has been, but not really who the person is. And in some cases, in terms of definition of what you do for a living or where you went to school, it really hides what's really going on. I went to the Birmingham University School here, BUS, that became the Altamont School before my junior year. At the end of my junior year, realizing I hadn't done as well that year, and I calculated that I would come in number three in my class and I wanted to come in number one. Very important, uh, the approval thing. I asked my father if I could go to boarding school. I did go to boarding school and ended up repeating my junior year at and graduating from the Hill School outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I made my rank and I went on to Princeton University where I majored in the study of classical Greek and Latin. I worked on Wall Street for Morgan Stanley. I re-met Leslie on November 4th, 1985 at 8.31 at a dance at the Ivy Club. Princeton University. I'd known her in college. 
She had dated and became engaged to a friend of mine. That's another story. (laughs) But after dating three years, we were married in Boston. I then attended the Warden School and got an MBA in finance. When at the end of our first year, Keen was born. After graduating, we eventually returned to New York when Malcolm was born, then to San Francisco where I joined the venture capital group of Bank America, where Charlotte was born. It was around the time Charlotte was born, a little before, we began going to church. I can't tell you why. I think it was because we wanted our children baptized. And I can't tell you why we wanted them baptized. Although I think part of the reason is we had this beautiful antique christening gown that we wanted Charlotte to wear. (laughs) That's no joke. Pathetic. We love California, but after being there for about five years, I met the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that wanted me to form and run a venture capital firm associated with this company. Originally, the fund was to be run out of San Francisco, but it was ultimately decided that the fund should be run out of the company's headquarters, which was Birmingham, Alabama. CEO didn't know I'd grown up here and thought it would be hard to get us to move back here. But after some thought, we welcomed the chance to be back near my family. And the chance to run a substantial venture fund had always been my ultimate career goal. We moved here and settled in pretty quickly. Now, Jesus tells a parable, Mark chapter 4, in which he puts those who hear the word, his word, into four groups. At either end of the spectrum are those who reject the word outright and those who accept it and in whom it thrives. One in between category consists of those who accept the word but only superficially. Therefore, they are scorched by the sun and wither and die. They fall away quickly. The remaining group is described this way. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. In a way, I think this last group is the most most pathetic. And it's the group I belong to. When my mother left, I saw my father hit his knees. I told you until up, in the, up until that time he could and did conquer everything. But this caused him to realize for the first time that he needed help outside of himself. And he turned to God. We started going to church every Sunday at St. Mary's here. Over the next few years, I learned about God. I believe he existed. I believe Jesus was his son. I believed he died and rose from the dead. All the hard stuff just didn't see how that had any significance for me. I heard the word, but like those people in the parable, it didn't mean anything. Shortly thereafter, my father married a beautiful woman, a Christian, who I still call mom, an honorable woman. She came into my life when I needed the example of an honorable woman. She prayed for me every day, and she still does. But again, I couldn't see the significance. There were other times, and I'm going to share one of those with you in just a few minutes. Introductions to the chaplains at Princeton who invited me to Bible study and other meetings, all unanswered. Leslie's in my premarital counseling with the Episcopal minister who had buried her mother eight years before, a family friend. I asked Leslie the other day if she remembered hearing about God in those sessions. She pointed out that we weren't listening for God, so we wouldn't have heard it anyway. Again, the same. So how did this change? Now to the how. I said there were, was a perfect storm, and there were three factors involved in this. 
won that venture fund, my ultimate goal. From the beginning, there was something wrong. My partners were secretive. They were not honorable. I actually felt oppressed driving to the office. I don't want to be weird on you, but I was oppressed going to that office and depressed about what was going on inside. I began praying as I drove to the office, first to myself. That is what I call worry. I pray to myself, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to handle this? And then I think out of exhaustion and anger, I brought God into the mix and asked him to fix it. There was no evidence that he was fixing it. And I began to feel like that motherless child again. That God-shaped vacuum was being ripped open. Maybe the sword that Frank was talking about. Second force was I met Paul and Mary Zoll at a party, a birthday party, at Gates and Margot Shaw's house. Paul introduced himself to me. I, I told him we'd been interviewing churches and not sure we'd go. Can you imagine? <laughs> he invited me to come early the next day to meet the clergy here at the church in the living room. Uh, and I decided I did. He was so gentle and so full of grace. And I can remember Mary Zoll uh, in a funny little way. She was part of the conversation too. And I said, sure, I'll show up. She said, it'll change your life. And I thought it was just a, her way of complimenting her husband. But she was right. I met Paul early. We had a cup of coffee. And I told him quite confidently that I understood the tenets of the Christian faith. I didn't un understand their significance to me. Most notably, I couldn't answer the question why Jesus had to die. And in his own way, without being hard-handed, he started giving me things to read about the nature of sin. This was over a period of weeks and even months. And I began to read that, you know, while most people like me think of sin as breaking the commandments or the rules, that the first commandment is to have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just doing bad things, like that list I put together for my mother, but also in making good things ultimate things. Sin is trying to establish a sense of self or having that definition of life by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness in your relationship with God. While that had been staring me at the face for many years, it was, it was quite an epiphany for me. The third force um, that happened was that my wife made me join a small group. And that's exactly how it happened. She came home and said she'd gotten a call from Fran Kate and that we were to be joining a small group and I knew she was serious. I didn't really worry about it. It was kind of one of those yes dear things because I knew that in three weeks, it'd all be over. So we joined a small group. And over the, I didn't even bother learning the people's names for the first three weeks because I knew it didn't matter. I'd never see them again. Um, and it's true. But for the first time in my life, I was dedicating time to God. Now, I didn't expect anything out of that. It just struck me. You know, I'd come to church, but this was different. I was dedicating time to God. The second thing was it was the first time in my life I focused on the Word of God. I had read, I'd read the Bible in the original language. Big deal. 
I had read the Bible for its literary content, big deal, but I'd never focused on the Word of God. And that's what this group did. The third thing was sharing the impact of the Word of God on my life, which is a completely new concept for me. And I shared it in two important ways with Leslie, number one, because I'd been going on this little side journey with Paul and having some revelations. I think it's really difficult if a couple you know, develops differently uh, in matters of faith. It can be very difficult. But she was right there with me, and it was her, her instigation that got us there. And then secondly, with five other couples that I found in the same boat, I didn't feel myself unique um, anymore. They were dealing with the same issues, and we were talking about that. And finally, and they, they don't, they hate this, but they've been mentioned almost every talk, is the leaders of that group, Don and Jane Menendez, led in a way that, that you know, I let off today concerning that prayer. They really diminished themselves so that God could be glorified in that group. And I remember them speaking eloquently, beautifully, and meaningfully about their faith. It really had a profound effect on me. And so I began moving because of these three forces. From a knowledge of God and the tenets of the Christian faith, as I said, to a relationship with Him. I didn't really have a Damascus moment, but I was at a meeting across the street here, one of those exhaustive meetings where you think that people are just meeting because they have time to meet. And I came over here exhausted, and I was led to go to the chapel and kneel and just say out loud to God what I had learned about the nature of sin. You know, I thought for a long time there's many things that I put in the way of a relationship with him. And I acknowledged that he had come after me so voraciously and how sorry I was that I was the one to prevent that. And I thought I'd put many things, as I said. But I just said I realized that I had put me in there. And that was the main problem. And, you know, there was... I don't, you know, I don't even like to concentrate on this, but there was that warm feeling, and I'm sure that angels were singing somewhere. I didn't hear them. But it was a confirmation more of the transformation that had been taking place. And for the first time, you know, first time in my life, I realized I was in a relationship where I couldn't do anything more to please the person who was loving me. I couldn't make any list. I couldn't be any better. He loved me fully and wholly for who I was, and he loved me passionately. And there was no abandonment possible for the first time in my life. As it says in Hebrews 11:6, without faith is it impossible to please him. He had given me this gift of faith, and that was all I needed to please him. It seemed too easy. It's not easy, but it seemed too easy. You know, I said that, got a few minutes left here, he encourages me constantly. And I want to I say a couple of things. You know, I, I said that um, I didn't understand for a long time why that fund that I moved here dissolved, and many of you know this. Um, 
that in praying to God that the fund, when I went into the partners and said, look, something's going on here, they said, okay, let's just blow it up. So the reason that I moved here, you know, no longer existed. Um, But I didn't understand that for a long time. But the partners in that fund were Richard Scrushy, Mike Martin, and Will Hicks. And as it turns out, the purpose of the fund was to, you don't need to know the accounting terms, shore up the balance sheet to support the alleged fraud that had been going on out there. Both Mike Martin and um, Will Hicks pled guilty to felonies in association with that fund. And if you look at where I sat um, in that fund, it was in the middle of all those guys who pled guilty. And I I believe, um, call me corny, but I believe I was lifted right out of the middle of that and that he did answer my prayer. The second thing he encouraged me with is with small groups, both with sharing with other couples, but in particular, uh, Christian relationships with men. And I I really am speaking to all the men in the audience right now. Um, I don't know about you, but I found it hard after college to really find true connections on a substantive level with men. Um, You know, you can have people you play golf with, tennis with, fish with, but I find it you know, very hard for men to talk about substantive things. And through small groups, it's been absolutely amazing um, uh, the depth that I have. One friend dislikes small talk as much as I do. And when we have lunch, he said, OK, we don't have much time. How's your marriage? <laughs> um, another friend, we meet, and his name is Don, another friend. Uh, we meet at Starbucks and talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Imagine that. What is that about? But it's true. And his name is Troy. Another, another friend, you know, I love getting instant messages from men saying, my son was just in a football accident. Pray for him immediately. Um, you know, and it's just so incredibly meaningful uh, and so difficult to find that, except through Jesus Christ in a relationship with him. I'm going to share with you one final story that some of you have heard, um, but it is ultimately, it's, it's very minor, but it's ultimately very encouraging. Uh, and then I'll wrap up. It'll only take a few minutes. What do I have? Five? Um, you know, I told you that I spent my life sort of slamming doors shut in God's face, and you wouldn't believe how dense a person I am. But my senior year at boarding school, I had come home and I was studying Greek. And my parents made me come to an EYC function here down in what we called Underground Advent, which was an absolute pit of a basement where the EYC hung out. And we had invited the Bishop of Alabama then, Bishop Stow, to come. And uh, he was there, and uh, no one was talking to him. And so I went up and talked to him. And we had a great conversation. I told him, in order to gain his approval, that I was studying Greek and that I was actually doing a special project that Christmas in in, uh, translating Sophocles' Antigone. doesn't matter. He was impressed. Um, And I came to church the next day, and the rector here, Brinkley Morton, came up to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, the bishop would like to see you in Carpenter House after the service. Well, this is like me going to see the great Oz. I mean, you know, I thought he had found out what I had done after the EYC party and wanted to talk to me. But I went over to Carpenter House and walked in, and he came out of his office, and we were standing right where the chapel is. It didn't look like it does uh, today. We were standing right there, and he came up and shook my hand and told me how much he'd enjoyed the conversation the night before. Uh, 
And he said, uh, young man, God has a call on your life. Now, I believe God has a call on all of our lives, but I had no idea what that meant. And he said, my prayer for you is that you would talk as enthusiastically about biblical Greek as you did about classical Greek last night. I said, okay. And he gave me an incredible gift. He said, in order to symbolize that hope, he wanted me to have this, which is his textbook from seminary that he used to study Greek. It's the New Testament in Greek. And it has all of his personal notes in the margin. It has all of his translations and what he thought was important. And he inscribed it. To Barry, may the, may the ancient text more clearly illumine your heart and mind with God's word. Furman C. Stale, Bishop of Alabama, Advent, 1977. And I wrote him a nice note, I think, and I you know, took the book back and it went on a shelf for many years. I actually did study some Koine Greek, some Biblical Greek in college because it was easy. Um, at the seminary next door, a buddy of mine and I would go over there, and I used this book as my textbook, and all the seminarians thought that was very cool. More approval. Um, and then we would go to the pub and talk about the, the language. We didn't talk about how the verses related to us at all. We talked about the language. Again, it went back on a shelf, and I was in that small group I told you about, and this is potentially embarrassing. But I began to bring this Greek Bible to that small group and kind of look at it over to the side to see what this meant because I was really into studying the Word, as I told you. And Don noticed I was doing that one night and everybody had a good laugh about the Greek geek. And, um, but he called Fran Cade and told her that uh, it might be a good idea to call me and get me to teach something here. I'd never taught anything. And Fran did call, and if you know Fran, she didn't call once, she called about seven times. (laughs) And it was decided that I would teach here, and I said, what about teaching some Greek? She said, that's interesting. So I came up with a four-week short course in Greek called Understanding the Word by Understanding the Words. The morning I started the course, Lisa Newman told me that I had to be switched around. I was supposed to be in the day school library. She said, you're going to have to give it in Carpenter House. You're going to give it in the chapel. And I thought, okay, fine. The course was well attended. All my parents called all their friends. <laughs> but when I walked in, I realized that's where I'd gotten that Bible, you know, 24 years before. I told the course that. Um, it went on, and about two weeks later, I was preparing for the last course. We'd come down to hear a Latin speaker, Leslie and I. We were in a hurry. She was. We went through the express line in Klingman, and I had all my books with me because I wanted to prepare for the last course. And it got really quiet in there. There was only one other elderly clergyman way across the room and me in the room. And I was preparing the fourth lesson. And Sandy Barwin walked through the room. And she said, hey, Barry. Hey, Bishop. And I looked at the guy from the back. His back was to me. And I realized it was Bishop Stow. And I had his Bible with me. And I was preparing the course. And I walked over to him. And I had the Bible in my hand. And I tapped him on the shoulder. He was drinking coffee. And I said, Bishop Stow. And he said, my Bible. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's your Bible. And he said, he remembered the conversation from 23 years before. And, he, and I brought him over to the table and I said, look, I'm, I'm laying it all out here. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. And he started to weep. And he hugged me and he said, Barry, 
God doesn't waste anyone or anything. And I'm not here to tell you that because the bishop prayed for me when I was 18 that I went to college and majored in Greek to teach a four-week course here. (laughs) But I am telling you that what he was saying in a bigger sense is absolutely true, that God doesn't waste anyone or anything. Amen. Barry, that was an encouragement from our Lord. We, I know everyone was touched. Anybody else? Did you say you took Corny Greeks because it was easy? Yes. <laughs> well, brother and sister, Easier than classical Greek. Huh? Well, that could be. I don't know. But I had three years of Corny Greek. And uh, for someone to stand up and say it's easy is a, quite an incredible statement. But, uh, anyway, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank God you. Bless you, my friend. Thank you. That was wonderful. No more questions or anything? That well, would you be interested maybe in doing another little uh, a Greek class for us come sure. pretty soon? All right. We'll sure. Like that. That'd be good. I'm not sure who's up on our pilgrims. Uh, Jane, do you know? Or Jane, are you up? Okay. Jane Menendez will be here uh, next Next Sunday, as we continue with Pilgrims uh, on a Journey, let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm.